blended finance. It is all about collaboration and letting everybody do what he or she does well, like an orchestra with all the musicians that, that really need to make their sound at the very right moment. And then it's beautiful music. By bringing together many disparate funding approaches into one structure, blended finance can create more opportunities to invest in developing countries and vastly increase the amount of money we have to spend on tackling climate change. This is a CD Insights podcast from Cardano Development. I'm El Leontiev. And I'm Oli Guiu. In series two, we're discussing everything related to creating an impact in emerging and frontier financial markets, impact investing trends, and what it will take to bridge the annual $2.5 trillion SDG financing gap. Today, we are digging into a new report published by the UN-convened Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance called Scaling Blended Finance for Climate Change. The report investigates the obstacles that prevent investing in climate-friendly solutions in emerging markets. We've got a long lineup of guests on today's episode, so we'll introduce them as we go along. The UN-convened Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance is a collective of insurance companies and pension funds committed to decarbonizing their investment portfolios and achieving net zero emissions by 2050. Michael Claster is Portfolio Director at Legal and General Capital. He's also part of the alliance and contributed to the report. He tells us what blended finance is and how it can help us address climate change. You're really blending uh, worlds of investors together that normally typically are in completely different swim lanes. I would say in completely different swimming pools even. For example, donors or charities they typically do not uh, pitch uh, for or, or try to get the same investment as investors, right? It's a completely different ballgame. Same with uh, development banks that, that, that try to help build infrastructure in, say, African countries or, or Asian countries. They are not normally in, in the line of uh, investments that, that normal investors are. But the beauty is that if we combine all these investors and we all give them their very specified role, yeah, magic really happens because, uh, interestingly, investors have the biggest pool of assets that you can think of. I mean, the asset owner alliance is about $11 trillion, but the total investment pool we are talking about is easily in, in the range of $200 trillion. And a trillion is basically $1,000 billion. So we are talking about $200,000 billion that potentially can be tapped into. And the need of infrastructure that we are now discussing in, in emerging markets is, is in the maybe two trillion a year range. So it could be easily accommodated by this pool of assets. And to put it even even better, governments all have uh, their uh, official uh, development uh, aid programs or ODA. Uh, you, you maybe have heard of the 1%, the magical 1% of GDP that you should spend in aid. That's also another thousand billion. Uh, so that's that's also money out there. So the money is absolutely not a problem. Anybody that says, yeah, there's not enough money, <laughs> there's, there's plenty of money. The problem is that investors cannot just throw money at a project which doesn't meet their fiduciary requirements. I mean, they are in the world to protect the interests of, of their clients, of their, their policyholders, what have you. They cannot just go into a project in Africa where the governance is not right or where the risks are, are way too high and the returns are way too low. That's simply not, not possible because that, that 
kind of blends uh, charity and investments in the very wrong way. So the only way to do it is indeed the blended finance structure where you say, wait a minute, if these development banks take the what we call the equity piece or the mass piece, the more risky piece of the structure, basically take the hit when, when things go wrong first, and maybe that's 15% of the, of the structure or so, and we have uh, some charities in the middle that, that have, of course, a little bit less return, but, but also less risk. And then the institutional investors who, who may be able to, to invest the majority of the money, maybe 50%, 60%, but they are third in line when uh, things are really getting tough. And then suddenly all these pools can, can work together in their own way because investors can clearly say to their stakeholders, look, the risk is, is heavily mitigated. We have a real development bank on the ground that has worked 20 years in this region or more that has a lot of extra leverage that we never could have. We don't even have people there. We don't even speak the language. But this development bank has direct contacts with governments, what have you. So certainly they can play their role. They can uh, magnify their balance sheet because the development bank typically does projects all by themselves or, or maybe a little bit of external bank financing. That's it. So if they have one billion to spend, maybe they can do one and a half billion of projects because they have a little bit of bank lending. That's it. But if you do blended finance and you have 15% of the capital structure, yeah, you can do 7x, which is 7 billion. And suddenly you're having a much bigger impact. As Michael alluded to, mobilizing finance in emerging and developing economies is no easy task. The risks are perceived as high for investors, but are they as high as they seem? And what can be done to change these perceptions? Here's Joost Zaldberg, CEO of Cardano Development. There's no doubt there are high risks. The environment in which you have to operate in developing countries is not as stable as it is elsewhere in the globe. You have to design your, your activities in accordance with that instability. On the other hand, I believe that investors generally overestimate risks and underestimate the strength of businesses in developing countries. One of the reasons why they overestimate risks is how credit rating agencies deal with the analysis of that credit risk in uh, weaker countries. Credit rating institutions are used to uh, looking at risk in, in layered forms, and they start with the country risk, and then within the country risk assess the, the business risk. In a weaker country, your starting position is a very weak rating. Therefore, your assessment of the credit risk of a particular business cannot exceed that very weak level. Our experiences, and, and that of development finance in general, is that your business risk can be much more resilient than what comes out of the assessment if you start with the country risk and go down from there. So the solution here is twofold. One is on the real risk to take aspects of, of that and structure that away using blended finance, for instance. And the other is, is to really concentrate on data and proof to make sure that everyone assesses the risk at the right level. And on both sides, work is, uh, is needed. Now, there is a major lack of publicly available credit risk data, which means investors have to operate in the dark. And with so much uncertainty in measuring risks, they have to assume the worst. That leads to the risk of a lot of potential investable projects being overestimated, left unable to find the capital they need. When it comes to yields, returns and defaults, 
A lot of that can be solved by making data publicly available. So why isn't it? The first answer is, is that there isn't all that much data there. Of course, the development banks and other institutions have been investing in developing countries for a long time. They have track records that they've recorded and that could be used as information for, let's say, new investors coming in. And, and that needs to happen. That data needs to be disclosed. And, and there's a lot of people discussing how to do that best. But the starting position is that people have to realize, even if everything is disclosed, there's not all that much data out there to, for instance, create very solid statistical uh, models on. Uh, so the, the first premise is that uh, whilst we should make the best of what we have, there's always going to be limitations. The most concrete element of data that's out there is called the GEMS database. That is the collective arrangement between 24 development finance institutions to gather probability of default and losses, loss expectations from all of the activities that they've done for decades. That database exists, but has not been, uh, has not been opened up. And we are working together with all of those uh, stakeholders to discuss how that could be opened uh, the most effectively and the fastest way possible. To address this, the report suggests making the GEMS database public. This is basically a database of all the development projects of development banks from the last few decades, with a wealth of information from various different sectors and countries. We asked Michael why GEMS is important to investors and how likely the proposition of making it public is. Investors normally try to assess their risk based on historical data. It doesn't mean that they always trust uh, history uh, will, will repeat itself for 100%, but it's a very good starting point to do the analysis. And having databases like this available makes that task a lot easier. It will also help rating agencies to, to dive into the subject much more easily. There's now maybe one or two rating agencies. I, I know of Kroll, for example, uh, and, and SMP. S&P to, to a less extent, that are doing their best to, to really get into this, this line of business and, and understand what's going on. But much more rating agencies should do that, and, and, and they should do it in a, on, on a larger scale, so that not only the data is available, but also the availability of ratings uh, and the cost of getting that those ratings get lower. So it, it becomes much more a mainstream asset, because ratings is almost like the currency in the investment uh, landscape. So I cannot stress it enough. This is absolutely important. Is it realistic? Yes. The, these, these institutions are all uh, financed by public money. So it would be very odd that if the public wants a, a cleaner climate and if this is one of the things that can help unlock it, it would be odd that somebody says, well, I did my best to collect all this data. I want to keep it for myself. So I think that, that there's definitely a good cause there. We, we just, just should uh, trumpet it a little bit more and tell governments to, to push their uh, development banks to release these, uh, these data. It's not, yeah, not, not more fancy than that. Let's paint a broader picture now of what kind of global economic transition has to unfold for emissions to be halved. As a starting point, we are talking about about 50 billion tons of carbon equivalents that, that the world is emitting. So halving something like carbon 
if you look at it in numbers, is halving 25 billion tons. And if you look at where these tons are coming from, obviously we all know that, that energy and, and, and how we heat our homes and how we propel our, our cars is a very major contributor of this carbon. But carbon is everywhere. It's also in our food. It's also in, in our transportation, in, in our houses, in our buildings with, with concrete. So to just say let's halve our carbon basically means that everything that we, we work with, uh, that we deal with, uh, has to change. So what, what kind of assets need this sort of investment for climate mitigation and adaptation like as a priority in terms of uh, when we're talking about infrastructure? Yeah, there's an interesting, uh, yeah, if you say low-hanging fruit there, it, it is emerging markets and it has to do with, I would say, three things. First of all, emerging markets typically use diesel and coal to fuel their homes, to, to, to heat their homes, etc. So there, there, there's not a lot of clean energy out there because obviously that, that costs a lot of money and that's typically not uh, widely available. So if you sunset a coal plant in, let's say, South, South Africa uh, and, and secure better energy, it has a huge impact. Whereas if, if you are in the UK, where the grid is already efficient, there's a lot of wind energy there, we don't have a lot of coal, it's mostly gas, which is also a, a lot cleaner. So if you do solar farms, you can easily have two times more output in Africa than in the UK, uh, if, not, if not more. But now we are going to finance. It finances the other way around. The asset class UK wind is so uh, in demand that there are probably five times more investors lining up for each project that there are projects and there are simply not enough pieces of land that are suitable for wind farms. There are not enough engineers to build them. So in reality, in financing, it's the other way around. We are all financing the, the, the high hanging fruit in terms of, of carbon impact, but the low hanging fruit in terms of, yeah, it's easy to finance because the UK is, uh, you know, is a double A country. Uh, and there's a good uh, regulation in place. So for investors, this is the, 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 the more easy route, but it's not the best route for the planet. And are, are there sort of systemic and regulatory barriers that exist for investors when looking to make these sorts of investments? Yeah, the, the, there are plenty. And, and that's exactly why this is such a challenging, uh, but also interesting uh, uh, field. But as, as a starting point, typically investors have, have mandates that, 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 that stay a little bit closer to home meaning hey, you can, can uh, freely invest in UK, you can even invest to, to a very high percentage in, in, in Europe, uh, US, maybe some other Western countries. But having an investment proposal and saying, yeah, we, we are going to invest in Zimbabwe or uh, Venezuela for, for, for a solar farm, yeah, nobody has ever had such a proposal on his desk. They, they have all sorts of questions. Uh, how, how is the legal structure there, this, that? And if the scale is is not at, at, at a very high level. It's simply not worth the squeeze, if I can frame it like that. Because you can imagine if normally tickets of 200 million are discussed in an investment meeting, and we now have this 50 million project that basically none of the of, of the members, of the investment committee has a, a deep, profound uh, knowledge of, it will mean so much extra work. So what needs to be done is scaling it up huh, as a first starting point to, to overcome that hurdle. Secondly, asset owners, should also take a little bit of a risk and just take the plunge. And, and if you just start with one project, even if it's smaller and not maybe worth your time uh, on a on standalone basis, just start with one and then do the second and then do the third and, and, and scale it up. So asset owners definitely have a role there to play, uh, but it's not only the asset owners. There are a lot of other 
hurdles and uh, that that other actors basically have have imposed on themselves, and which, which also don't help to to resolve this problem. So, what financial instruments can be used to de-risk investments? Well, a major one is guarantees. In Kenya, there's a $4 billion aggregate pool of financing available for infrastructure projects. And Cardano Development has a very exciting new initiative that it's working on with Infraco Africa, a new guarantee company that will guarantee Paris-aligned investments. To tell us about it, here's Louis Lepaz, advisor for the new guarantee company. The aim we have with the new guarantee company for Cardano Development is to deliver accessible local currency debt to Kenyan issuers. And we have a target of guaranteeing $100 million of climate finance over the first three years of operation. So why are we doing this? We see many bankable companies in East Africa struggling to raise debt financing. Cardano Development's experience with running Garanko um, is that there's a lot of unmet demand among Kenyan companies and as an international player focused on Kenya, among other markets, you don't have the bandwidth or the credit country limits to go after all of those deals. But meanwhile, there's billions of dollars of local institutional wealth remaining largely untapped in Kenya. What we're trying to do here is connect these two things. So to take an example, the company will find an issue which is bankable, but needs some structuring work and support in its approach to the market. Our new guarantee company will undertake the due diligence, develop a financing structure. Once we're happy with it, it will give a 100% risk guarantee on demand, irrevocable, to help that company go to the market and raise debt. And with our guarantee, they can raise cost-effective funding in Kenyan shillings. Meanwhile, Kenyan investors can lend to the company knowing that they're protected by our capital. So that's the model of the company and how we're looking to use guarantees to unlock investments into climate-friendly infrastructure. The next phase, though, is, is particularly important. And I guess to the wider theme of this podcast, you know, what can, what can entities like MDBs and bigger institutions be doing to help raise more capital for climate finance? The, the next phase is where it becomes really interesting. So we're hoping to have one or two multilateral development banks invest in the capital of this entity. And that's a really interesting way of those very creditworthy institutions using their credit strength to support third-party initiatives. With an institution like a multilateral development bank standing behind the guarantee company, the, the comfort investors take from the guarantee is greatly increased and really helps the, the entry into the market. And it's a way for MDBs to help mobilize greater volumes of private sector investment towards, towards climate goals. Infraco Africa has played a major role in the setup of the new guarantee company, Let's bring in Bertrand Kachasi, investment manager at Infraco Africa, who can tell us more. Infraco Africa is part of the private infrastructure development group, which we call PIDGE. We have committed to invest $15 million into a newly established guarantee company in Kenya, alongside a $5 million commitment from Calon Development and with the support from FSD Africa. The new guarantee company will aim to unlock local capital for sustainable infrastructure and projects that improve climate mitigation and adaptation and which will deliver on the UN Sustainable Development Goals. The entity will also provide guarantees to corporates and financial intermediaries, but on a selected basis. As an equity funding provider, Infraco Africa plays a critical role where there is no obvious local sponsor, for example, a sovereign fund, 
who would seek to independently and proactively support the creation of a guarantee company. Equity funding can also be seen as a powerful catalyst to attract strategic partners who share the same development objective with the initial and core investors like Infraco and Cardano in that case regarding the, the development of the local financial markets whilst, whilst ultimately wanting to be replaced by private capital at a future exit point. The innovative model of local currency guarantees draws on pitch experience of developing InfraCrete Nigeria and InfraZam in Pakistan. Both are similar companies supported by pitch in different uh, geographies. With the creation of this new guarantee company in Kenya, we have applied the, the lessons learned for, based on the experience of Infocrate Nigeria and Infozem in Pakistan. We witnessed that the incurring of a domestic institution with an empowered local team to conduct a business by targeting the local capital market is much more effective and credible as a long-term partner of local institutional investors and can develop quality strategic relationships that are not possible for internationally operating guarantors whose decision makers are too far away. Moreover, we witnessed that building an early deal flow, I mean, I mean a pipeline of projects, can be very difficult, especially if the institution focuses too narrowly on a particular sector, and by that I mean the infrastructure one, which transaction tend to, to have a very long execution times. That's why this new guarantee company will have a broader mandate than purely infrastructure. And finally, I would say that recognizing the critical need for such company, Infoco Africa has been working with Cardano Development for some time now to develop this, this new company to bring the benefits of local currency financing to the Kenyan market. And I think we are very proud of that. Let's talk now about investor trends, and in particular, those that target positive climate outcomes. Dr. Namdi Igbokwe is Director of Knowledge and Thought Leadership at Convergence. Convergence has recently published its State of Blended Finance report. Here's what they found. So it's important to note that we saw an overall decline in aggregate financing levels, uh, a dip of about 60%. So between 2019 and 2021, around 14 billion was invested into climate blended finance transactions compared to 36.5 billion thereabouts between 2016 and 2018. So we're seeing a downtrend. 50% of climate blended finance has exclusively been focused on mitigation and 14% has a pure adaptation focus. And this is largely in line with what we see in the broader climate finance environment as well, that mitigation leads while adaptation tends to lag. Within that scope, 88% of financing into blended finance projects, which is the leading transaction type, went to renewable energy. So again, within that mitigation space. Uh, and in terms of the blending archetype, concessional debt and concessional equity have been the most dominant approach, making up about 70% of blended transactions. So directly to the question about investor trends, around 2,700 transactions have been made from over 860 investors. And really the breakdown looks like this. So commercial investors make up about 33% of commitments, but this aggregate number again has been declining, going from around 20 billion to just over 4 billion over the last four years. But there has been a small segment of commercial investors that we're seeing a bit of an uptick. So private equity and venture capital are seeing a bit of an increase in recent years, which is a promising outcome. 
Uh, as far as DFIs and MDBs from the public side, they provide 60% of the capital for blended finance, uh, climate blended finance. And the remaining 40% comes from development agencies and foundations. Also, foundations provide around 15% of concessional capital commitments, which is leading in terms of that catalytic component that's critical to a blended finance transaction. So broadly, no investor category has exhibited a significant uptick, uh, despite the rhetoric around allocating being in complete contrast. So as part of our 2022 report, we went out to our members and did a survey in trying to assess the significance of climate and how it's impacted investment decisions. And 55% of our respondents said that they had significant climate targets. Uh, so in a lot of ways, we're not seeing a match between the rhetoric and the record of transactions, right? There's a bit of an incongruence there. There is a need and a want to, but there doesn't necessarily be outcomes that we would hope to see. Uh, in contrast, there's actually a decline, uh, which is a bit alarming, but you know, there's some reasons for that. But in light of all of these challenges, it's actually a great opportunity for blended finance. It's a, and it's an apposite tool to mitigate these increased risks. That's really what blended finance is trying to do, right? It's to de-risk or mitigate risk into a position to where the transaction is deemed acceptable or bankable by the private sector. Overall, the aggregate numbers are in decline. But you know, what can we do to reverse this trend? Uh, there's a few things that we point out in the report that I think are important to also call out here. Uh, number one is there's a massive opportunity for adaptation. The expansion of adaptation is key. Remember the numbers earlier where adaptation is lagging in comparison to mitigation. One thing that we can do is expand the adaptation taxonomy. So direct investors to adaptation solutions can really look beyond what's typically on their radar. You know, for example, companies helping to manage droughts or disease or supply chain disruptions uh, and other climate impacts are out often not really referred to as adaptation, that small sort of taxonomy shift can allow larger incorporation of other sort of sectors, not to mention opportunities in agribusiness and agritech. So really expanding the adaptation taxonomy is one step to really looking at broader pipeline and broader projects that can be bankable and can be you know, brought into this blend, climate blended finance universe. Well, there's no doubt that to address the threat of climate change, we have to help the private sector engage with blended finance at scale. Ivo Mulder is the head of the Climate Finance Unit at the UN Environment Programme, and for many years he's been involved in developing business cases to engage the financial sector to tackle environmental challenges. He shares some practical advice. I think, first of all, we should see blended finance as a means and not the end. Uh, so ultimately, a, a project should be financially commercially viable on its own right, ultimately, without the use of, of public money to take away some of the cost or risk. But the practical advice I would have is for a bank or for, a, for an investor is to build up internal capacity, first of all, uh, but see it as a kind of research and development investment. Second is to look at what deals are financed in a particular area, say onshore, offshore wind, off-grid solar, deforestation-free agriculture, for example, and sort of see what, what does the uh, investor, the bank, or the other private entity want to focus on? What are the deals that have already been financed and how can they be replicated by the company question? But it does require a certain degree of internal capacity in order to originate deals, in order to, to replicate what others have been doing. So th that is the practical advice. It will, in the end, be a cost in the beginning for any entity who starts with it. 
but it may pay off dividends once a number of deals have been financed in this space. Just within that question, Evo, do you see any trends within the private sector engaging in blended finance for climate? Yeah, I think a big trend that I see is also following COP26, the climate COP in Edinburgh, there was this whole race to zero. Uh, A lot of companies, both in the real economy as well as in the financial sector, have made net zero commitments by 2050. But many also have much shorter term milestones, say reducing an X number of emissions by 2025, for example. And the net zero commitments on the one hand, coupled with disclosure requirements like the SFDR in Europe or the taxonomy that we see in Europe, the UK and other countries that basically say what is and isn't sustainable is putting a lot of pressure on, especially institutional investors, to put more of their capital in what is truly where sustainability is at the heart of the underlying asset that they would be financing. So it goes beyond the traditional, say, uh, environmental, social and governance fund. So the combination of net zero, disclosure regulation and a taxonomy that basically says what is and isn't sustainable is driving demand from institutional investors towards impact themed uh, investments. I think the second trend that I see is, I think, a growing interest in climate adaptation. Early this week here in Geneva, there was a conference about how to deal with the massive floods that Pakistan uh, was exposed to. Uh, about one third of the country was flooded. It was a monsoon on steroids, as Antonio Guterres uh, themed it. But developing financial products around improving climate resilience against increasing weather extremes is the second trend that I see. The third is is the area of sustainable land use. So sustainable agriculture, uh, restoration, food systems. It's it's at the heart of uh, much of the nature loss that we experience. Uh, It will not be dealt with only by public money. And uh, the global biodiversity framework that was agreed just a few weeks ago in Canada is specifically also referencing the role of blended finance in the final treaty. And related to that is um, the topic of biodiversity and how I think in the past it it was fully focused on it being funded by private philanthropy and by governments. And I think there's now more and more private entities that say like, how can we have a positive impact on biodiversity as well? So I would say on one hand, net zero disclosure regulation driving demand. Second, climate adaptation. Look, for example, at um, Pakistan. Third is sustainable land use, and the fourth is biodiversity. It's abundantly clear that urgent collaborative action needs to take place to unlock blended finance at scale for climate change. So let's end by hearing why this subject is so important to our guests and what they'd like to say to the financial development sector. I guess I'm an idealistic millennial. I've cared about climate finance since I learned about the impact of climate change and what we can do about it. I think my message to the financial sector or to to others working on this area is we need to both stay focused on our goals, but also avoid being naive and idealistic when creating institutions which we intend to be commercial and make sure that we give them the flexibility to deliver returns as well as impact. Yeah, from my side, from where we are sitting, we can see that there are various institutions with skill sets or capacity that they could bring to the table. We can see what could be the, uh, the outcome if everyone worked together. The scale of the challenge is so huge that nobody can solve this on their own. We also, more particular, 
see the potential for private finance to leverage the work of the development banks to a multiple level. So this is where where we come in to try and help achieve that co-financing and mobilization of, of private sources of capital. The goal to realize the challenge is really so compelling that uh, this, this, this is a very, very good driver for us. I think the urgency of climate crisis is clear. With more frequent floods, droughts, and severe weather events occurring across the globe and impacting progress toward achieving the UN SDGs. In the countries in in which PIDGE operates, governments alone do not have the finance and the expertise needed to respond to the climate crisis at the necessary scale and pace. Therefore, blended finance, which brings together the finance and the expertise of public and private players, is key to delivering climate resilience development and supporting the global transition to need zero. PIDGE has been working in the local currency guarantee space for over 15 years now through our sister company, Garanco. So as I said earlier, the urgency of climate crisis is forcing us to be ever more creative in terms of solutions to unlock the new sources of climate finance. And so over the past five years, we have worked to establish local currency guarantees companies in Nigeria, Pakistan, and most recently in Kenya, which are capable of unlocking new sources of finance, chiefly from domestic institutions such as pension fund and, and life insurance companies. My message to the financial development sector would be that we need to join hand and work together to pool our experience, resources, and knowledge to implement innovative financial models, uh, such as this new Kenyan guarantee company, to enable sources of finance to flow into the climate resilient infrastructure and businesses that will shape a more sustainable future. Collaborative action is key because we think about, you know, the billions to trillions agenda. We think about all of the targets that haven't been met. The status quo has shown a consistent inability to mobilize the private sector effectively. Concessional catalytic capital from public and philanthropic organizations have to be more strategically integrated. And we have to deploy that to create fiduciary investment assets to ensure a larger supply for commercially bankable projects. Unless we create the assets that the private sector can invest in, we're not really going to move the needle on private sector capital being involved in SDG or development finance. And the way to do that is by de-risking through blended finance. So if we think about catalytic capital, the real imperative is collaboratively and competitively awarding the best proposals globally to projects to maximize additionality, to optimize value for money. Part of what we do is, or what we're calling for, is to create this catalytic funding facility And we espouse this auction-like process with a clear delineation of actors and mobilization targets. And part of that is, number one, strategically deploying these catalytic funds. Number two, calling for an improved governance model between MDBs and DFIs, which look at stakeholders to initiate uh, updated set of KPIs to really focus on aligning to blended finance and catalytic targets. We're looking for an open access hub for knowledge to share learnings and to share insights to then replicate some of these projects. We're looking for local capital market financial intermediation to be increased. So what we're calling for is just a realignment, taking a quantum of catalytic capital that already exists and deploying it more strategically, 
less programmatically, but more strategically in a way that can then shift numbers from, you know, the 240 billion output currently to maybe two or three times that, you know, above 500 billion to then start incrementally making strides towards reaching those trillion dollar figures that everyone's aspiring to. We will not be able to neither tackle the climate or nature crisis just from a public finance perspective. What's already clearly abundant is the amount of private money uh, that is flowing towards onshore and offshore wind as well as solar from a private finance perspective is much higher than in terms of pub public money being provided. And this is ultimately what is needed. And that the reason why that money is flowing is because people understand the business case, they can quantify the cash flows, they can quantify the net present value of a project. And because of that, they say, well, it makes business sense for me to invest, say, in a wind farm in Uganda or in an off-grid solar project in Kenya, for example. What is needed now is to, uh, as Antonio Guterres would say, to put it on steroids and to apply that to other sectors as well. So, so far, it's been relatively niche uh, in terms of impact investors, some high net worth individuals who are involved in it. What we really need is the power of pension funds, insurance companies, and other types of institutional investors, including sovereign wealth funds, who are basically going to bankroll this. The other ro role that I think is, is absolutely critical is of multilateral development banks and DFIs. I mean, they have a huge role to play, to lead by example, essentially, and make their balance sheet much more flexible in what kind of risk they're taking. Well, why it matters for me, of course, I, I'm also a citizen uh, and, and a father, and, and, and you want to give the planet to a new generation the way you, you uh, basically got it, and, and if possible, even better. Well, that, that's not where we are heading now, as, as we discussed in the beginning of this, uh, this interview. So there's definitely a very strong sense of urgency. Coming back to yeah, what, what we really should do, we, we already touched upon a few items. I mean, asset owners should go much more out of their way to get the first deal through. Okay, maybe the deal is small. Okay, maybe it is very complicated. But just learn from it, uh, learn from others, build relationships, and just do it. Because, you know, that, yeah, this is the moment to get, get rid of all the, all, all the red tape. Even if it's small, it will have a big contribution because then the team suddenly has the expertise and, and the market is big enough. Like we just discussed, we're talking about billions and billions and thousands of billions. So the moment you do a small deal, you can easily scale it up 2x, 3x, no problem. And for governments and, and uh, development banks, they should work together and they should understand their role because they can... They, they basically have the magic in their hands. They have the boots on the ground. They have all the good projects, but they simply don't have enough money to do it all by themselves. They probably also don't have the investor discipline that has been ingrained for so many decades within the investor community to make a project really sound from a government perspective, risk management perspective. So that's added to all the knowledge and expertise of a development bank. Yeah, really uh, boost, uh, I would say, any any project. Uh, and then lastly, the rating agencies uh, and, and, and let's say database providers, make it transparent, cut through the red tape and make sure that this becomes a very investable asset class. And I think then we, uh, yeah, we are at least one big step closer to, to our goal of halving, uh, halving the carbon by, by 2030. Thanks to all our guests for joining us on CD Insights, the podcast from Cardano Development. 
Please like and review us on your favorite podcast app and visit our website for loads of extra content and information. That's cardanodevelopment.com slash insights. Bye for now and we'll see you next time.